Hi, welcome to Kineo's Stream of Thought. I'm Dorian Rogers, Production Manager at Kineo, and today we're going to be talking about disruptive technologies. I'm pleased to say that today I'm joined by Matthew Leith, Senior Technical Consultant, James Corey Wright, Head of Learning Design, Sarah Nagy, Project Manager. So I guess perhaps we should start with the kind of obvious question. What do we mean by disruptive technologies? Is it where technology which has had a sufficient impact on people that it's actually changed the way that they do things? Yeah, I'd agree with that. I mean, I think we were sort of talking about dividing it into two areas, really. I mean, we've got hardware and software. Um, I mean, for me, from a hardware point of view, since the advent of the computer, then I guess the next thing that's come around that's really disrupted the industry has been smartphones and tablets, which have been a, a huge change um, all across the industry. You say um, that, um, and I entirely agree that in theory, um, smartphones are disruptive in terms of uh, workplace learning. But in fact, I think that there's very little evidence that we're using smartphones very much to deliver learning in the workplace. So it's questionable whether they've actually been disruptive in the workplace. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. There's some work we've been doing to investigate um, in our clients how much smartphones are used, and there are certainly some where it really has been, and we've seen uh, a huge uptake in terms of people doing uh, learning on their phones. Um, in other cases, it is mainly people sticking to doing it on desktop computers. I think it's, it's very dependent on the kind of industry you're working in. Um, yeah, and, and also the type of learning. So um, it, it's perfectly... Um, plausible that in the future that is actually going to change in terms of how people um, will take that content and how they will use it. I think keeping everything um, within a sort of SCORM file and, and working through that on a phone obviously is quite a different experience from um, sort of micro learning and how that would be fed to somebody. So I guess if most people certainly in offices are doing consuming their learning online on the desktop, um, I suppose you could really question as to whether you know, that, that is disruptive technology or an example of it. And if you don't think it is, then you could argue that, in fact, look, technology has not been disruptive at all in the workplace when it comes to online learning. We mentioned there's, there's kind of two areas. There's hardware and software. And um, one example of um, software is uh, Skype. Now, we know that that's, as a, as a tool, it's something that is completely commonplace now, and it's something that probably wasn't being used by very many people not that many years ago. So um, how do we feel that perhaps software has had more of an impact than hardware in changing how people kind of use learning? Yeah, I think certainly from um, a communication software point of view, Skype is a, a fine example, and it's something that right in the early days of Kineo was really embedded into everything that we did, and we uh, worked a lot more remotely here in, in, uh, than in any other job that I've worked in the past. And it was absolutely essential to kind of the role and also how we used it in e-learning as a way of um, bringing in subject matter experts and being able to have a conversation with them without necessarily having to have them travel all the way across the country to a sound studio to do a professional sound recording. Um, with some basic kit set up, you could do some quite, uh, you know, get some really good stuff just from using a, a Skype chat. Um, so that, I think that was definitely a big one. And then obviously that splintered out and we've seen almost recently an explosion of, of lots of different technologies. I mean, Slack is obviously the one that gets talked about an enormous amount. Um, then there's Microsoft's own kind of competitor, that's uh, Teams, which obviously anyone in the Office 365 world is going to use, um, rather than pay a fortune for Slack. Um, so yeah, those, those have been incredible. Um, 
almost overwhelming in some cases. I mean, I certainly find I have about six different chat applications open on my... I can actually cover both my monitors with chat applications um, and not have room left for anything else. So that's certainly disruptive in a very different way. Yeah, I think the, the technology is, is, is there. It's like, it, you know, it has that disruptive... Um, the capacity to be disruptive. But what probably hasn't happened is we haven't really sort of, in a way, caught up with it. And we're not really making full use of it. We haven't changed the way in which we currently deliver um, and what we produce learning online learning content. We haven't sort of, we're not taking advantage of the functionality of the phone, for example. Um, we're not taking our advantage of all these um, uh, different communication channels mm. um, in our learning. Um, in the world of education, I think, I think ed education is ahead. They are using the phone and, and all its functionality. They are using all these different uh, comms apps and so on and so forth. And they're embedding it into how they deliver learning. We're not currently, I don't think. No. But then I think that goes back to the question of um, why and what's it for. So I think as, a, as an industry, <clears throat> um, e-learning in particular, um, rather than education, um, is, is, has often has that sort of magpie effect of what's shiny and new, what can we do, how can we somehow use it? Um, so I think it's... Uh, if it if there isn't a need and it isn't actually necessary, then working out a way to integrate it maybe isn't our kind of focus. It is looking at what's needed. Well, from my point of view, working in the, the technical side of the industry, I think the challenging thing, particularly doing a lot of corporate learning, is you're often working to the lowest common denominator. I mean, let's not forget we've only just come out of a time period when we were still having to develop for IE8 and IE9, and we still have the odd project where we have to do that. So we really are working at quite a, a basic level where you can't assume that every single person will have a smartphone. Like I say, where you've still got people doing everything on the desktop, it's hard to, confine a, to find a compelling argument for spending a lot of money developing something for the smartphone when only a small proportion of people will necessarily have access to that kind of device. Uh, so, yeah, the technical challenge is, is a very difficult one in the world of e-learning. And I think, um, allied to that, you've got issues of uh, control, sort of old-fashioned attitudes towards um, information and, you know, whether it's um, accurate or truthful or, or not, and whether employees can be trusted, for example, to um, go social um, when it comes to learning. Uh, so, you know, control and ownership of the information is still a big deal. I think, uh, you know, it, again, the corporate world has to sort of let go because everyone's going to get hold of stuff anyway any which way because technology is so disruptive um, but again they've still sort of got some issues around trusting employees and then trust you know and basically getting with the program yeah and I, I think um, it would also be useful for the learning sector to drive technological change rather than just use uh, or repurpose something that's already there um, I think, you know, particularly looking at maybe testing and assessments, which over many, many years, either in paper form or in digital form, have really remained the same. So uh, actually um, having a system or a technology or a device uh, that will actually change that up, I think, would be disruptive, both in education and in adult learning. That's an interesting point. And I think we know that in reality, very little learnings created by or for um, learning and development initially I think we know that it's something that tends to get kind of adopted by um, and a lot of the stuff we've mentioned Skype and Slack and things that it wasn't kind of their their primary kind of reason for being 
And what do we think maybe we're seeing out there that's kind of being used perhaps in other industries or more widely at the moment that we think might be something that um, L&D teams could be um, bringing into use to kind of take learning forward? Um, I, I think AI in its sort of biggest biggest sense and uh, widest sort of definition is, is definitely relevant. I mean, Matt knows a lot more from a technical point than I would, but um, certainly if you look at how it's being used in other sectors, uh, you can see sort of obvious reuse of that. Again, going back to what are we doing, why would we be doing it, and who's it for, I think the big question around that is actually how will AI change the way that people um, produce things generally? So would that actually negate some kind of learning programme at all? So if you've got, for example, driverless cars, do you need a driving test? If you have people who can, uh, you know, prescribe or, or put together some kind of medical program for somebody and that's all done through a system and a program, do they need the same amount of medical training? So I think it will actually change the shape of what is needed to be learned in the first place. Yeah, I would agree with that. And um, you know, definitely change, changes the whole notion of learning and whether it is in fact learning that needs to be delivered. Um, technology is sort of in a way, negated the need to learn to a certain extent, uh, certainly in the workplace, because you can. It's more about uh, summoning up the information you need at the point of need, and you can do that through whether it's AI or you can do it yourself using search. Uh, you know, it, it's questionable whether we need to learn very much anymore at work. It's more about being able to ask the right questions. I find you know you want to find something or search for something on Stack Overflow or Google, um, being able to form that query in the right way to get a good answer if anything is probably the skill that's more useful these days than being able to remember any one particular fact or anything like that because you can certainly spend a hell of a lot of time searching yeah and i think that's i think that's the key as well is <clears throat> obviously sort of personalized learning systems so that you only get the bit that you want i think there's a lot there's a lot out there there's a lot of content and people have got less and less time and inclination to way through hours and hours of stuff just to find the one thing that they need. Um, so any, any technology that's going to help you get to um, get to that item as fast as possible will be useful. And I reckon that will be the shape of um, learning to come will be exactly that. But if whatever it is that gives you, takes you the quickest to, to, that, to what you need. I think also, I mean, from another te a technology point of view as well, I think uh, location-based services... I think could be quite a key thing. I think it's something that is now so common that it's almost in every single device. It's, you know, other than maybe desktop computers where there's not really any need to have anything like that in there, but almost every single laptop, every single smartphone, every single tablet has got a location, you know, some form of GPS or lo is location aware in some form. That seems to me to be something that would be very easy to take advantage of because it is one of the most common technologies available now. So presumably you also mean augmented reality um, as part of that? Possibly. I think that is, is coming. I think it's, it's difficult to do at the moment. I mean, some of the, you know, you really need to build a native app to, to be able to deliver decent augmented reality. You can do some stuff in the browser. I have seen a few demos, but it's quite basic. You need to have the latest iOS, you know, really to be doing all the advanced stuff. You want to be using, you know, an iPhone X. I think it will come but I think it's a way off yet. 
from being able to guarantee that that's available in everything. Whereas a location-based service, you know, your average laptop is going to be location-aware now, whereas it's going to be a while before every single laptop is capable of doing augmented reality. It's interesting. I think we've been talking about augmented reality and virtual reality as the kind of next thing people are going to be doing in learning for about a decade without <laughs> it ever kind of quite coming. And I think it goes back to a couple of things you've said, Matt. One is about the fact that people don't want to spend a lot of money. And we know that particularly virtual reality, the the equipment is very expensive as well as the development costs. And um, AR, it's just the fact that, yeah, we're not quite there yet with the technology. Whereas some of the other things that have been discussed about kind of location-based things, um, you know, things that are just kind of inherent in the phones that people already have, um, and some of the AI stuff as well. I mean, so many people will have things like Alexa and stuff at home that are kind of doing doing a degree of this already. So I think that's maybe we should be looking in areas where the, the cost is low because the the kind of the, the technology is already there. And it's maybe it's not the... The technology itself that's disruptive, it's how you're using it, is maybe where we should be looking. I read a book a while back, which I, I, I like to talk about a lot when I'm kind of referring to these things, which is a, a book called Ready Player One by Ernest Klein, um, which is it's, it's actually coming out as a film next year, but it's a fun book. But I think one of the things he puts forward, which is really interesting, is basically all children in this kind of future society are educated entirely in virtual reality. There is no more going to school. They go to school purely in a virtual reality format. Everyone is anonymized so that bullying is not possible. It's kind of, you have to read the book to understand it, but it's a, it's a very interesting viewpoint he puts forward and you can really see it's quite a compelling vision for an education system of the future where you know it, it's a great leveler. Everybody can go to the same school, get the same level of education. It kind of cuts out because everyone is anonymized. There's no such things as racism or sexism or anything like that anymore because it's so hard to actually define any of those characteristics on people. Um, so I, I generally, it's a great book anyway, I generally recommend giving it a read, but also it's a really interesting insight into what an education future might look like in virtual reality. So I guess if, if VR is kind of like the big thing and may, you know potent, has a potential for a very big change, what might be some of the kind of smaller things that maybe around us that we should be looking to now, which are a bit more achievable before we're waiting on kind of, you know, outside developments to get make them cost effective or the kind of hardware to be easily available for people? Well, I think, um, you know, borrowing from sort of e-commerce and advertising, you know, there are some easily adaptable, you know, solutions. So recommending content based on behaviour, um, um, sort of promoting different types of content and retargeting that kind of content back to a user. So, it, you know, it depends on smaller <clears throat> smaller items of content and other people interacting with it to be able to get that kind of um, behaviour pattern. And then they're looking at um, reshaping itself, essentially, based on how other people use content. I think interactive video combined with virtual reality would be a really exciting way forward, where you really are, you'd feel really immersed in the world that you're working with rather than just watching something on screen and kind of clicking a few buttons, you could really get the experience of being there, which I think would be quite key. And I, I think particularly for me, it's also one, again, like with location-based services, it's a, even though some of the equipment is very expensive, you can also do an enormous amount with just a smartphone and Google Cardboard. So, you know, realistically, you know, if you've got a smartphone, you, 
five, ten pounds to buy a Google Cardboard box and suddenly you're up and running with virtual reality and it's actually incredibly impressive. Yeah, I, I really agree with that. I mean, it's whether it's using that sort of uh, um, facility uh, with the f- smartphone or, or, or any other sort of, all the other wonderful things that the smartphone can do. I think it's about getting hold of that and making the mo- best use of smartphones and, and really pushing it and promoting it within companies as being a sort of a, an alternative way of getting your learning, basically. Um, I don't think it's being done, and I think it's something as simple as just promoting it and pushing it, making it available, and making sure that, the, it's de- that all the content is designed mobile first is also very important, so that the whole experience is much more enjoyable and much more uh, like a consumer experience, essentially. So we know that often there's a lot of blockers to access to learning. So how can we use technology to make the user journey easier? Well, one of the big blockers, I think, for for a lot of people is access to some of these systems. So having to remember endless amounts of usernames and passwords. I think um, single sign-on has improved things greatly. Um, in that you can just have one username and password that you use to log on to all of these systems, but it is difficult to implement, it is difficult to roll it out, and you still have to sign in. Why do you still have to sign in? Why doesn't your computer, you've already signed into your computer or your phone, why do you have to do more? Uh, surely, there's, you know, I think the next level has to be some way of having it pick up on that, and then you're, you're just in, so there's nothing to remember, nothing to type. Um, you know, it, that's a, that, for me, that's a huge blocker, and it's it's all slowly coming. I mean, obviously, your phones, you've got... You know, anyone who's got a phone with fingerprint recognition on it knows how much easier that is to use than having to type out a password. I haven't used the facial recognition technology on the iPhone yet, but I imagine it's, you know, fantastic and is even better. Um, And then also the integration of those with other kits. I know Microsoft have done some stuff in a recent Windows update where you can, you know, if you just come near your PC with your Windows phone, it unlocks automatically. And I think that's fantastic and that sort of stuff. I've been interested in that since you know the 90s when I first managed to get hold of a fingerprint scanner to test on unlocking my PC, and I just thought it was absolutely brilliant. And it's amazing that it's taken this long for it to become still not ubiquitous but commonplace. But uh, you know, it's still there's still a long way to go. But I think improving that will improve the, the user journey quite significantly. I mean, for years, uh, museums have been using near-field communications to sort of give people a kind of more interactive access to to the kind of exhibits and the information. Why do you think that perhaps um, kind of corporate environments um, and the way that we deliver kind of learning to those environments is a bit slow to pick up on some of these technologies? Absolutely. I mean, I can see a lot of advantages there for that particular technology for um, any kind of job where, particularly I think where there's a more physical aspect to the job. So, I mean, obviously we have you know, clients who are have people working on oil platforms, are fixing things, anything like that, where there's a real physical component where you could take along your smartphone and your virtual reality goggles, wave your smartphone over the device, it recognises the thing that you're looking at and then gives you a list of, uh, you know, virtual reality programmes you can work through to see how to fix it, how to repair that device, um, and then you can kind of work through that on the job. As it is, watch a video about how it works. Um, I think there's a lot of scope there for... Uh, being able to do some some really interesting stuff. Yeah, and I think also if it could be applied to assessing uh, competency, then I think it would reduce the need to um, test people using sort of multi-choice questions. If there's anything that you could set up so that the system could recognise somebody's um, workflow, their patterns, um, you know, their their skill set, um, and then that would be automatically assessed. I think that would 
be much more beneficial and be a much better um, test of somebody's skills. I think on that note, there's a lot more you could perhaps do with something I've not really seen done in the industry a lot, though, though it's kind of talked about, is integrating the training into the software that you're using a lot more so that you know, your training involves actually using the software, not a kind of controlled system capture of it. I mean, it's, it's an incredibly challenging thing to do because you might not have that level of access to that software, but it would be really interesting to see a bit more joining up of the people making this stuff in the first place with people producing training content for it so that when you're working through the learning, you're actually working through set tasks in the software um, that show you how to use it, that then give you tasks to do uh, to prove that you know how to use it. I think that there's yeah. some very interesting integrations that could happen there. Just challenging getting those two different sets of people to work together. So we've mentioned before that you know the mobile phone is a something that everybody has and a you know a very convenient way that people could be consuming learning. So why do we think it's not being used or working quite as well as we'd hoped? Um, well, I think we touched on it just earlier, but. Uh, fundamentally, I think it is that although we, um, as an industry, developed responsive solutions so that content can be displayed on a <clears throat> mobile device, um, I'm not sure that we necessarily changed the kind of content or the way somebody would consume it. So al although the shape has changed and the, you know, the size of that content window is different and it looks the right size for a phone, m most people wouldn't want to spend an hour of, of their time uh, learning, you, you know, that content off a mobile device. They would um, typically look at it for, uh, on a desktop. So if you want people to use mobile technology or mobile phones or um, handheld devices, then you need to really change the way that you're um, developing that content from a learning perspective, um, not just a technological um, Perspective. It kind of comes back to that whole thing of I've been sold an hour of content and I've paid a lot of money so I want it to be really interactive. Um, that's not the kind of thing that's going to go down well on a phone. Actually having highly interactive content on quite a small screen I think is particularly annoying because you're constantly yeah. <laughs> tapping, moving stuff out of the way. Actually you just kind of want to read and scroll through and, and you don't want to do an hour of content on the phone. It's more about how quickly can I deliver this learning point to the learner. So making it stretch out to an hour is not a fun experience for a learner on a mobile phone. Yeah, most of the research that I've read on the subject um, is fairly consistent, that, that users basically say they, they treasure two things above all else. First of all, it's just ease of use, and secondly, that it looks good. It's as simple as that. So if we concentrate on ease of use, good um, UX, and really sort of high-quality high, high quality, uh, graphical uh, graphics and so on, uh, then you know users are going to like it. Now, ease of use is an interesting point to, to talk about there because I think that's a particularly problematic area for someone who's frequently just developing content for someone else's platform. So we're still stuck in an era of SCORM 1.2 learning management systems. They're frequently designed for desktop. They don't have a nice mobile interface. So the process of actually getting in there, typing in your credentials, launching the course is kind of painful. You have to be connected in order to use the course. You can't just download it and use it offline unless you know some of the LMS manufacturers have made offline players. Um, but this, I imagine there's still quite, you know, I only know two or three who have, and I think a lot of other people don't have that facility. Um, it's not really possible for me as a content developer to make your content work offline on a SCORM LMS. That technology just doesn't support it. 
uh, X API does allow for that to happen. Um, but a lot of people, first of all, haven't got into using that yet. And also, the way you solve that problem, that still has to be solved. It only allows for it to be solved. It doesn't actually provide you with the solution. So, um, and indeed, people need to allow themselves to be disrupted by the disruptive technology. And that's perhaps not sort of happening enough at the moment. Uh, so I think they just need to throw all the balls in the air and ask themselves what it is they want to achieve and how can it be achieved with a phone, say, mm -hmm. and not worry about all the rest of, of it. And I think it's also allow themselves to be disrupted by disruptive learning. So it, it is constantly um, <clears throat> referenced that people learn a lot of content from YouTube. It's just that it isn't school tracked. So there's no way for an organisation to to tick a box and say, yes, that person has done that piece of learning. And uh, sometimes those things are blockers. They're blockers to a learner because they feel they're being sort of monitored and assessed, and it, it, it is potentially a psychological barrier to wanting to learn something. Um, and in terms of the way that content is produced and then uploaded and the user journey from logging onto an LMS all the way through to completing uh, a SCO um, can actually be a bit of a turn off if you want to, uh, you know, convey information to somebody and for them to take it on board. Mm -hmm. So there's something here I think about the fact that this is kind of um, learner-led rather than learning organization-led in that it's everybody already has access to this technology. It's already out there. It's already something they're using. So do we have an idea perhaps of what might be out of, out of everything that's out there, what might be likely to have the biggest impact in the short term? Um, well, Miles, that would be the behaviour, the, the, the behaviours and attitudes of the people who own the information or the knowledge that they want to transfer to employees. That's the biggest barrier at the moment, and also the greatest area of opportunity because the technology is all out there. And more, even more to the point is that learners are very, very comfortable uh, and happy to use it. If you'd like to find out more about what the modern learner needs and expects, why not download our Time to Transform guide at kineo.com. Or if you'd like to continue the conversation, you can talk to us on Twitter, where we are, at Kineo. <laughs>